You are listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. Uh, Find your seat. Turn to Jonah chapter 2. I'll give you another minute to find that in your Bible. Um, It goes Hosea. We're we're talking about the 12 minor prophets. And so it goes Hosea, Joel, Amos, um, Obadiah, Jonah might help you find that book of the Bible. It's a small book, only four chapters. And so we're talking, uh, we're in this series on the minor prophets. And uh, I want to read this whole chapter. So if, you're, if you don't have your Bible open, turn, open your Bible, whether it's an iPod, iPhone, digital Bible, or one of the Bibles that we have on all the tables. Um, I think it's, I, I, I just like the, to kind of make you get into the habit of, of looking at passages of Scripture in your own Bible to, to kind of create a habit of doing that. And so we're going to read this whole chapter, all of Jonah chapter 2. We're going to read a whole chapter in the Mill Sunday School. Everybody say, Yay! And, and so here, here we go. This is the chapter. This is the prayer from Jonah as he's inside the great fish uh, after he just got swallowed. It's, it's very uh, uh, psalmy. It's very uh, poetic. And, and so it says this. So Jonah chapter 1, excuse me, Jonah chapter 2, verse 1. It says, From the inside of the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord. And so this is like a prayer. If you're, if you're ever in a time of distress, this is an amazing prayer to, to repeat, to, to think about, to pray on. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the deep and the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to me. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. To the earth beneath barren me forever. But you, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pit. Verse 7. For my life was ebbing away. I remembered you, Lord, and and, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And then verse 10, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited up Jonah onto dry land. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for this story of of Jonah the prophet. God, I do pray that in here as the Mill Sunday School, as we take a long one-hour look at, at who Jonah was, this prophecy he had, God, please open our hearts, open our minds to understanding who you are how you work, how, how you've worked in the past, how, this story of Jonah and this prophecy against Nineveh and how you had compassion upon the people who are not your people. God, may we see the truth in that. May we see how you work. May we fall more in love with you and your ways. We bless your name, Jesus. And everybody screamed, amen. Um, does anybody remember field trips when they were a kid? Like going, I loved field trips. Here's a little clip art and a little Photoshop of my head in a clip art. It's not very good. I did it myself. But anyways, you could see how excited I was to go on a field trip is the point. And so this is me, my little head. Um, in fifth grade, we went on a field trip. Um, I lived in upstate New York at the time. I, that's where I kind, of, I kind of come from. Upstate New York fan suite. Um, and, and we went to the Herkimer Diamond Mines. 
Can you imagine as a kid, as a field trip? I mean, field trips are always fun, already fun and exciting. And so we, just the idea of going to a diamond mine. Can you imagine as a kid going? And so I was so excited for this field trip. And that's all I talked about for months leading up to this field trip about how I was going to find a diamond and I was going to be rich and it's like going to be winning the lottery and be rich forever. And um, I just kept asking my mom and dad for a rock hammer because if you had a rock hammer uh, like this, one here in this picture, you could chip away at the rocks. And so on the field trip, as you spent the whole day looking for diamonds and the Herkimer diamond mines, you could chip away at the rocks and find the diamonds inside and be rich forever. And so uh, my parents did not own a rock hammer, nor did they want to buy a fifth grade boy a sharp hammer that looks like that. And so I understand why, like looking back, it's like, yeah, my parents never bought me that hammer. Well, there's probably a reason why. It's a sharp hammer that I could have killed someone with. Anyways, um, so my parents were like, no, we're not going to buy you a rock hammer for this field trip. It's too dangerous, etc. So I was like, dang it, I'm not going to get a rock hammer. But I had a friend in my class, and we were talking about the Herkimer Diamond Mines and how we're going to go there on the field trip. And he said he had a rock hammer, not just one, but two rock hammers. And so I was like, yes. And I said, can I borrow your rock hammer on the field trip? And he said, yes, of course you could borrow my rock hammer. I was like, sweet, like all day? And he said, yeah, all day. I was like, do you promise? And he said, yeah, I promise. And so I was so excited. The day of the field trip came. We rode the bus. I think we had assigned seats on, on the way up. We rode the bus, got off the bus, and it was kind of disappointing for a couple of different reasons. Uh, a, I like a, a, a diamond mine. Like I imagined going into a mine like Indiana Jones or the Goonies or something. Cause that's, that's when I went to, you know, that's the movies that were out when I was a kid. So anyways, so I imagined going in, into a mine. Turns out it was just like a pile of rocks. And so there was like no mine to go in. So that was kind of disappointing. It was raining. That was kind of disappointing. And when I got off the bus, here's, here's the tearjerker. And so you all, this is a sad story. Um, I get off the bus and I go see the kid that has two rock hammers. I'm like, dude, give me the rock hammer. And he's like, well, I'm sorry. I, uh, on the way up here, I got to talking to another kid and I changed my mind. Um, I'm not going to let you borrow the rock hammer. I'm going to let so-and-so borrow the rock hammer all day. Everybody say, ah, I know it, it crushed my little, I mean, it's raining. There's no actual like mine to go in and, and I don't get to borrow the rock hammer. And that's why I tell the story because that idea of changing your mind and this little punk kid in fifth grade that changed his mind and it said, I said, do you promise, you know, going back when we were in class, you promise I could borrow your rock hammer? He said, yes. So yes, I have a rock hammer. Sweet. I'm going to go hit rocks or something. I was so excited about it. I don't know why, but that's what I was excited about. And the day comes around. It's like, man, give me the rock hammer. Sorry, I've changed my mind. And so this idea of the changing of the mind um, is something I'm going to ask you later because the book of Jonah, that's what we're studying today for the whole hour. We're going to talk about Jonah, who he was, is this idea of, of does God change his mind? Does God make a promise or say something and then change his mind and go back on what he promised? How does that work? Does God, you know, does God do that or not? Is God like the kid with the two rock hammers or is God like, no, if God makes a promise, he will keep it? Or does God, God like relent sometimes? And this idea of like the book of Jonah has God um, having compassion. And so does that change 
did it change his mind? Is, what is this thing? And so that's kind of the bigger idea of what we're talking about here today as we study the book of Jonah. And so we are in a series, a two-month-long series, which I know some of you are excited about because we've, uh, I don't think we've ever done a two-month-in-a-row series on anything. And here we are studying the minor prophets, which are the little-known, the books of the Bible. They're the 12 books of the, of the Bible that are uh, in the Old Testament. They're the last 12 books. They are the minor prophets because I imagine many of us, including myself, really don't know too much about them and have to study them. And so um, but I imagine by the end of these two months as we study um, the minor prophets, I, I, my hope is that all of us will be able to say something about each one of the minor prophets and the big ideas about who they were, what they did, etc. So, um, yeah, before we get started, uh, some announcements I think we just have one, and that is if you're new to the Mill Sunday School, welcome. This Sunday School is kind of the gathering of nerds on Sunday morning from the Mill, and the Mill is our main meeting. If you've never, if you're new to New Life, you may not know that we have something called the Mill. That is our college and 20-somethings ministry here at New Life. It meets on Fridays at 7 o'clock, and, and so if you're new to the Mill or to Sunday School, you can fill out some of the cards that we have on the tables. They're little yellow ones, and uh, you can bring them to me or the people in the back as you leave, and they'll give you a CD, a worship CD of some songs we recorded at the Mill at Friday nights or meeting um, a little while ago. So I think that's all the announcements. Let's, let's jump in right into it and, and do a quick review. Um, on all the tables should be like this big, massive piece of paper that we talked about last week. And last week was like a nerd fest. Like all we did was go over this huge sheet of paper and all the names, most of the names at least, and the dates and Israel's history. Were you here last week? Do you remember going over, the, the, remember the haze that was in the room as everyone was like, wait, what are we doing? What's going on? We're going over all of Israel's history? Yes, that's what we did. And so uh, I, I re-put those uh, timelines on your table in case you wanted to look at them. Um, but we are talking about the minor prophets, and they all fall into this period of history after David, and then David's son, Solomon, and then Solomon's son. Anybody? Yes, Rehoboam. Rehoboam is the last king of the United Kingdom. And then uh, Jeroboam sounds a lot like Rehoboam. Um, don't be confused. He's another dude that takes the northern kingdom, away from the southern kingdom, as you can see here on this map. They break off the kingdom. So there's the kingdom of Judah. The bottom, they, Jerusalem is a part of Judah. And that's where the, the, the sacrifices to God go on. And then in the north are all these rebels, kind of the bad guys, kind of the people and the kings that, that uh, separated themselves from Judah, separated themselves from the godly worship. And um, they, by the way, I have a little picture up here, set up idols in the north. So we're talking about Israel now because that's where Jonah is going to be from. Hopefully I'm not losing you. Um, They set up uh, calf idols to worship in the north. They set up one in the city of Dan, one in the city of Bethel. And so Israel is bad. They are evil in the sight of the Lord. They continue in the sins of Jeroboam, this phrase that's used again and again in First, Second Kings um, to talk about the, the sin of the north. And so I, I say all this to say that there were three minor prophets that came from the north, from this period of history where Israel was separated and the northern kingdoms, uh, the northern kingdom, uh, we have the prophets of Jonah, who we're going to talk about today, and Amos and Hosea are all the, the northern prophets. And there's this idea, if you read these three books, um, Jonah is interesting. We'll talk about it today. It's kind of the one prophet that's not like the others. But anyways, if you read like Amos, you'll read Amos 9.8 that says, Surely the eyes of the Lord are on the sinful kingdom, Israel. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. And so 
What would you do if, if a prophet, uh, if maybe Brady Boy was like, hey, guess what, uh, New Life? Uh, God is going to destroy this church. You'd be like, whoa, oh, seriously? Like, uh, what can we do? What, should we change? Should we repent of the ways we're doing? Maybe God will um, change his mind, maybe, is what you'd be thinking. Um, but Israel didn't. Hosea uh, 13, 2 through 3, it says, Now they sin more and more. They make themselves idols from silver. They fashion images. It goes on to say they offer human sacrifices. Therefore, they will be like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. And so we have these prophets like Amos and Hosea prophesying to Israel, saying, you are going to be destroyed. And sure enough, they don't really listen. But there's this idea, at least in my head, of like, what if they listened? But they didn't. And, and so here, here comes the Assyrians. I made this sweet. There they go. Did you see that? You missed it. Um, so the Assyrians come in. There's a date up there, 722, where the Assyrians come in. They invade the Israel, and they destroy the kingdom of the north. And God does exactly like he threatened. He said he was going to destroy them. Sure enough, the Assyrians destroy them. Now this leads us to the book of Jonah because Jonah prophesies to the city of, do you know, Nineveh. And Nineveh is one of the capital cities of the Assyrian Empire. And so we see this story. Here's like a sneak peek. Here's kind of a spoiler alert for the book of Jonah is that Jonah prophesies to the Assyrians. Who are the Assyrians? Everybody say the bad guys. Yeah, they're the bad guys. And so Jonah prophesies to them saying, repent. And guess what they do? They repent. And God doesn't destroy the Ninevites, at least in the book of Jonah, because the book of Jonah is one of the first prophets uh, to come along in the history, at least where Jonah falls in the big picture of things. And so it's like this big idea, spoiler alert, that even the enemy, even the the horrible, stinking Ninevites, these Assyrians, when, when Jonah prophesies that they will be destroyed, they repent. And, and God doesn't destroy them. So it's like, why didn't Israel do that? Why didn't God's chosen people, when, when they were prophesied against, why didn't they change and do something different? Anyways, um, that, that's kind of where we're going, a spoiler alert. But um, I wanted to give you a discussion question to get your uh, mental caps on. Does that make any sense? Anyways, um, your, the discussion question I thought w- would be interesting one for the book of Jonah, and we will get into the book of Jonah, talk about all four chapters here in a minute. But I think this bigger idea is that God changing his mind or changing what he intended to do. He threatens to destroy, and then he doesn't destroy in the book of Jonah, as we will see. Which brings us to this question, does God change his mind? Which I'm going to give you as a question to discuss amongst yourselves in a second. But it's like this pretty big theological question that people go back and forth on and like to disagree and talk about nuances of God changing his mind. Because some people would say, no, God doesn't change his mind. If he says he's going to do something, if he promises he's going to do something, he would never change his mind. Because if he changed his mind, he'd be lying about what he intended to do. And God doesn't lie. God doesn't change and so God wouldn't change his mind. I, I think about like a little kid in the grocery store at the checkout line. The parent's like, hey, guess what? You're not going to get any candy from the candy store. You have plenty of candy at home or whatever. And the kid starts throwing a fit because he wants some candy. And the parent's like, you are not getting candy. The kid throws even a bigger fit. And he's on the floor rolling around, screaming. Parents are like dragging him by the foot. And finally, the, the parent is like, fine, if you just stop throwing a fit, you will get candy. And so I think you know enough about 
um, how kids work to know that what you're teaching them is if they throw a big enough fit, they will get the candy and change their parents' mind. And so is God like that? Can we throw a big enough fit and, and get candy? Is God a, a bad parent like that in that analogy? I know I'm kind of throwing out big ideas that are uh, like, no, God's not a bad parent, but I'm just throwing out ideas. Um, and then the other side of this whole thing is maybe God does change his mind. Maybe God intends to destroy people or, or bring them down, but then those people who God threatened change, change their hearts and they repent and they say they're sorry. So maybe God does change and says, okay, since you repented, you come to me, I, I will come to you. I, I will change the, the, the threatening thing that I said I was going to do and I won't destroy you like I said I was going to do. So there's, there's two sides of this figurative coin. So um, here's, that's the discussion question. Can God change his mind? And here's, I'm going to kind of assign you uh, a, an idea. And you could change sides if you really want. You can move to another table if you really want. But if you're on the, let's see, if you're on the right side of the room, then, then argue that he does not change his mind. If you're on the left side of the room, argue that he can change his mind. So feel free to, to cross sections, but I really want you to stick to your side because I'm going to come out with a microphone and maybe get a little debate going. And if you're not sure where to start, just as one final thing, here's some verses to look at just for fun. So ready, get set, form groups, invite yourself to a table, bigger tables, look out for smaller groups to, to welcome them in and get a conversation going. Ready, get set, go. Let me uh, kind of halt your conversation so we can hear what the other side of the room has to say. I think um, what we'll do is uh, not really a debate. I have a microphone, so get, get my attention to if you have something to say. But I think I want to go uh, maybe the right side of the room. God does not change his mind. And then we'll get somebody from the left side of the room. And then we'll go back to the right side of the room. And then we'll get somebody from the left side of the room. So I guess four people will get to share kind of like a little argument about um, whether God changes his mind or not. So, the right side first. Yeah. Here's the mic. Uh, this is a pretty difficult question. Um, in the Old Testament, Moses was a mediator between God and man and settled the disputes. And in the Old Testament, Moses said, you know, when the Israelites were messing up, repent God, because God wanted to do evil against them. And God did not destroy them. But in the New Testament, Jesus is our mediator. And it says Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, so it's kind of, uh, I would say in the New Testament, he doesn't change his mind because Jesus is the same. And he's going to have the same promises and the same benefits. But in the Old Testament, it's kind of hard to uh, to think about that. I don't think that God changed his mind towards the people, but I think that if God wouldn't have done some of the stuff he did, it would have wiped out the whole entire population of the earth, just like Noah. And he saved Noah. If he wouldn't have killed all those people, it's kind of like a cancer. The more the cancer spreads, it just ultimately destroys the whole uh, whole body. So Good. All right. So basically God uh, in the Old Testament may have changed his mind because he was dealing with his people differently then the New Testament where he doesn't change his mind because we have Jesus. Does anyone want to take a stab at that? And we're, Now, we're not attacking Josh. We're, we're just, we're not attacking. We're not fighting. This isn't WWF. We are, we are just discussing the idea. So with that in mind, and then maybe we'll come back to Aaron after 
they get to share. Okay, so a prime example of God changing his mind would be in Genesis 18. And this is when Abraham um, pleads for Sodom. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> the Lord says, hey, I'm going to destroy Sodom. And Abraham goes, Lord, if I would be so bold to come before you, would you not destroy the city if there were 20 holy people in it? And the Lord says, okay, I will not destroy it if there are 20 holy people in it. And then he works his way down to 10, yeah. 5, and then 1. He's like, Lord, will you not destroy the city if there is one holy person in Sodom? He's like, okay, I will not destroy the city if there's one holy person. There wasn't any, so he ended up destroying it anyways. But um, in the, the Hebrew translation for that word would be God repented. So God changed his way and turned away from his anger. However, um, this was a decree um, so it, it was kind of a, it was kind of a threat, you know. And when God makes a covenant with Israel, He never breaks it. Um, the people the people of Israel broke it. Okay. So when the people of Israel broke His covenant, then He made a new covenant. So I would say God does not change His covenants, but He will turn away from His anger and turn turn away from His decrees. Okay, good. So so to recap, the idea of Maybe God threatens, like your mom's like, I'm going to kill you if you do that again. She's not really going to kill, hopefully not. <clears throat> but it's like, a, it's like a threat to do something different, to change. God sometimes goes back on those, but he never goes back on his promises. That's good. Okay. Um, this side, yes, Aaron, I'll give the mic to you, and then we'll come back to the other Aaron if you still want to change. Aaron? Okay, so... Um one of the girls at my table did bring up First Samuel, where it plainly states that God does not change his mind. He's not human, so yeah. he doesn't fall by those rules. First Samuel 15, 29. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. So his rules are completely outside of human nature. Um, when we talk about how God was threatening or saying, if you do not change, I will destroy you. He knew what the people were going to do. So he knew the end result. He is an all-knowing God. He knows the choice we're going to make because he knows our character. But it takes him saying that to initiate the reaction. So um, he does it for our benefit, not for his own. He cannot be persuaded in the way that we can change his mind um, but he gives us the opportunity with free will to make the decision even though he already knows the outcome. Yeah, that's good. You said two amazing things. One is that God is omniscient, meaning God knows everything. So if God uh, prophesies through Jonah that Nineveh will be destroyed, the Ninevites, uh, they do something, they repent. God doesn't destroy them. Did God know that he wasn't going to destroy them? Yes, because God is omniscient. And then Aaron mentioned something, that, that this really big word called anthropomorphism. That's a fun word to say. Think about it. Is that when God, it's like when we put on God characteristics of human nature, such as God making threats, but, but knowing that he, his threat is somewhat empty, that he won't do it because he knows that the people will repent. It's like God entering our story and we could put upon him characteristics that are human. Anthropomorphism. It's a big word you need to use someday. Anyways, Aaron Higgins, for the final say of yes, he does change his mind. Hi, Aaron. Uh, you Aaron. stole my thunder. Don't steal his thunder. A, a Why little would you bit. steal his thunder? Uh, the answer is 
Yes, no. Oh, that's good. And, and the reason why it's the yes, no is because who are we to pretend to understand the mind of God? Yeah, it's good. I think... I to, think to, to, go, to go to Job, you Job? know... Job? Yeah, okay. to, to, to go back to Job, where God says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? How do you understand the mechanics of the universe? Uh, how do we understand the mind of God? Because we are human beings, we're finite, he's infinite. And therefore, his mind, is it truly a mind the way that we think that it is? So, therefore, yes, no. Okay, got it. So he may, so the question, does he change his mind, is somewhat flawed because we have this perception of the, that when we change our mind, um, we didn't know everything. Like if I make an announcement, a, a promise to my family that we're going to have um, <clears throat> something for, uh, steaks for dinner, but then I get to Walmart to buy the steaks and steaks aren't on sale, but chicken is on sale. I could change my mind and be like, guess what? We got chicken. And but the family could be like, I hate chicken. I hate you. You changed your mind. This is horrible. And it's because like, I didn't know upon getting to Walmart that chicken would be on sale. And I didn't know upon bringing the chicken back home that my family would be so disappointed. But God is not like that. God knows everything, as Aaron the girl said, that he is omniscient. He knows everything. And so therefore, if God changes his mind, it is, it is unlike us changing our minds. And we have to take into context that God doesn't break his promises, but he does, in some circumstances, it does seem like he's threatened something. He says, I'm going to do something threatening and, 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 and bad to a bunch of people that were bad, like bring judgment upon them. And when people repent um, and change from their wickedness, like Exodus 32 or this passage in Jonah that we're going to read and, and consider, that God has compassion upon those people. And so it is this interesting mystery of, of, of the yes-no, that God maybe doesn't change his mind like we do, but, but he does relent and he does... And, and by the way, that, that relent word that is sometimes used in the NIV or the idea of changing mind, those two words, if you look them up in the Hebrew and you could do a word study on this like I have done, they're the exact same word. So it's not like in one passage uh, is saying, oh, God relented. That's something different than changing his mind. Well, it is, and we should understand that, but it's the exact same Hebrew word that we need to consider that in one passage it says, God is not a man. He will not change his mind. And then another passage like uh, ex- uh, uh, Exodus thirty-two fourteen, where it says, God did change his mind. And this, the same word is, is, is interestingly used in Hebrew. But that's just to add to confusion for you. Let's get into the book of Jonah, shall we? <laughs> and by the way, we're, we're coming back to this bigger idea of God changing his mind and how it works out. So, so don't be too disarmed. Um, so Jonah. Let's talk about Jonah. This, this book of the Bible, if you want, you can turn to it. It's only four chapters. If you have a small like study Bible or a travel Bible, I mean, um, it's probably only like two pages front and back. It's a very short book of the Bible, yet so much theology, so much of this story is, is told and retold, and it's a very popular story, um, and Veggie Tales made a movie about it. Anybody seen that movie? We, we will show a clip of it at the end. Don't worry. Um, it's going to be awesome. Amen. Um, and so, uh, so who is this Jonah character? Is he a real person in history? Well, if you want, you could keep your finger in Jonah because we will go back to Jonah. But you can flip to, if you're quick on flipping, if you're not, then, then just listen. But 2 Kings 14.23 mentions Jonah, the very same Jonah, at least the same Jonah who has the same dad's name. And the dad's name is uh, Amitai or something, Amitai. 
uh, Jonah, son of Amatai. So anyways, 2 Kings 14.23, it says, in the, in the fifth year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, which ends up being Jeroboam II, which makes Jonah uh, one of the very, very early minor prophets. That's why we're talking about him first, by the way. Um, so anyways, the, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. It goes on to say that the word of the Lord is spoken uh, by God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah. So we're, here we are in Second Kings, placing Jonah in history, spoken by Jonah, son of Amittai. I think I'm pronouncing that right. The prophet from Gath Helper, Hefer, Hefer, Gath Hefer, I guess. Is how you say that? So here's this character, Jonah, a prophet, mentioned in the book of Second Kings. Uh, potentially this, this, this same person. I would say it's the same person because it's the same dad's name, Jonah, and his prophet. It's, it's too, too coincidental. Is that a word? Um, to, to, to be a different guy. But anyways, that's how the book of Jonah starts off in Jonah chapter 1. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. In, in the book of Jonah, chapter 1, says, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. So Jonah, he's supposed to go to what city? Nineveh. Happens to be one of the capitals of what army? Are the Syrians the bad guys or good guys? Yeah, they're the worst guys. They're the horrible guys that are going to destroy Israel. They are the bad guys uh, by biblical definition. So um, here's a map. I, I, I doubt that you'll be able to see all this. Uh, because the, the, it's very small, but get this idea that the, the, the blue arrow points to potentially the city of Gath Hefer, where Jonah is from. And so he gets the word of the Lord to go to Nineveh, which is in the upper right-hand corner. Instead, Jonah goes south to the city of Joppa, a port city, and goes to the uh, bottom left to Tarshish, um, which we don't know exactly where it is, but we know he was sailing in the complete opposite direction of Nineveh. So here's this, this question that if you've never read the book of Jonah before, and some of you have and have studied it, and so you know the answer to this, don't spoiler alert it for anyone else. But God says, go to Nineveh and preach against it. Are Nineveh's the bad guys? Yeah, they're like your enemy. So imagine if you had an enemy, someone who you didn't like, maybe a teacher, maybe me, maybe someone you're sitting next to. You just don't like them. You don't like them at all. They're your enemy. If you're a Broncos fan, maybe it's like the New England Patriots. And, and the word of the Lord comes to you and says, preach against them for God is going to destroy them. Wouldn't you just drop everything and go to Foxborough in the Gillette Stadium and preach the word of the Lord against the New England Patriots? Wouldn't you go to that guy's house who you don't like and knock on the door and say, guess what? God hates you. He's going to destroy you. Wouldn't you just love to go and, and preach against them if the word of the Lord really came to you and said, go preach against them? You drop everything to go Go, you know, tell it to your enemies and say how they're going to get it, wouldn't you? But Jonah, for some reason, goes the exact opposite direction. And no answer is given as to why Jonah did that, at least at this point in the story. And so you have to, you just beg the question. If you've, if you've never read this before, if you're reading it and reading it slow and considering it, you're like, wait, Nineveh is the enemy of Jonah. Why didn't he jump at the opportunity to go preach against the enemy, his own enemy? You know, why didn't he jump at that opportunity? Was he like Moses, who didn't think he was a good enough speaker? Was he, um, 
like uh, Elijah that feared for his life, maybe. Maybe was he like Isaiah or Amos that thought their message was too dreadful and didn't want to deliver the message? Uh, We just don't know at this point. We we will know, but it's like this question that arises in this really well-done piece of literature that's poetic. It has alliteration. It has uh, aspects of like this Hebrew, it's called a kai, where like the story goes in one way and then it turns and goes the other way and wraps up perfectly. It's just this beautifully written story where it just begs the question, why did Jonah run away? And I, I really like um, books and stories, fiction, that, that, that ask the questions that you don't find out until later. Like, anybody like the series Lost? It's already played through. So there's like these questions. You watch season one, episode one, you're like, what in the world was that monster that was in the, in the, um, the island? And you watch the whole series, and at the end of the series, you're still like, what in the world was that monster? I still don't get it fully. Um, but it just, it, like, questions keeps you, like, uh, I don't know if it just keeps you involved as a reader. But anyways, so you beg this question, why is Jonah going the opposite way? Turns out, as many of you know, the story of Jonah, he's on a boat, on a pagan boat with these pagans, non-Jewish believers, non-God believers of Yahweh. And there's a big storm and they're, they're very uh, superstitious or believing in the gods or have control of things and bless and curse. And so they're, they're praying to their gods because there's a big storm. Turns out Jonah's asleep. And so you get this satirical element, ironical, whatever, is that a word? Ironic element of the story where a pagan captain comes to this prophet Jonah and says, Jonah, wake up, pray to your God, which is a very embarrassing thing if you've ever done something really stupid in front of non-believers and then the non-believers call you out and you're like, man, I thought you were a Christian. What are you thinking? I thought you were supposed to be this. And you're like, yeah, I messed up. Sorry. It's just so embarrassing. So like the satirical, ironic um, part of the story, I think some of the, uh, one of the many parts of this whole story is that a, that a pagan captain tells this prophet Jonah, pray to your God. Turns out they, they cast lots, which is this idea of trying to find out who's to blame for the storm. Turns out Jonah's to blame for the storm because he's running from the Lord. Jonah says, throw me overboard and the storm will stop. Basically, thinking about it, he's kind of committing suicide in, in a way. He's, you know, you throw yourself into the sea in the middle of nowhere, in the Mediterranean Sea. You're not going to live probably. And so Jonah basically is throwing himself uh, into the water. The, 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 the men on the boat throw him into the water. And then what happens? A big fish or, uh, I guess, folklore or, um, what was the word I was going to use? Anyways, uh, has crept into the story and we think it's a whale. How many of you are like, yeah, it's a whale, duh, because you've heard it so many times. The, the, The text never says whale. The Hebrew is the word dog, I think that's how you say it, and that potentially that's a word for fish. They had a word potentially for whale, which is tanim, and so they didn't use the word for whale. They used the word for fish, but then in the New Testament, the a word is used for just sea monster, so maybe it really was a whale. We don't know what it was. It might have been I, we don't know. We don't know what kind of creature it was specifically that swallowed Jonah, but a big animal from the sea swallowed Jonah. And there's lots of Christians going back and forth um, with each other and with uh, the secular world as to whether Jonah uh, being swallowed by a giant sea monster is literal or figurative. If this is a historical story or if this is a parable, if the whole thing's parable, if the whole thing's a real historical story, 
story, and we could let that debate rage in here if we wanted to and beat each other up and WWF each other. Um, but, but we're not going to do that. We're not going to get into this argument that, that, is, that is maybe seemingly fun. I think there's bigger figurative fish to figuratively fry in the story of Jonah um, being swallowed by the whale. But um, just to give you some, some thoughts about this story um, and, and whether it's figurative or whether it's historical, I think we should keep two things in mind. And these are just things that I've thought about all week as, as a believer um, looking at this story. And number one is um, just this idea of the, that someone surviving in anything's belly for three days um, shouldn't happen. It would be a miracle of the Lord if an animal swallowed another human being and that human being survived for three days. Can we agree upon that, that it would be a miracle? Okay, I mean, just like, duh, obviously. Because there's these stories, because these, I looked up all this week, modern day Jonah stories, and, and supposedly there, there's really a bunch of uh, stories out there about random people like this. The, the most famous one is a guy named James Bartle. I think that's his name. James, James Bartley actually is his name. Supposedly in the 1800s, he was whaling with some whaling buddies off the Falcon Islands. He falls off the boat. A whale swallows him. The other guys are just keep whaling like nothing's going on. They catch the same whale. 15 hours later, they're skinning this whale. They cut it open and out falls James. And you're like, dude, sweet. James, you're alive. Cool. High five. Um, So that's the story. And so there's this real story. It's a documented story in history, but it's not well documented with any historical reference. Like no one actually ever talked to James and got his eyewitness account. It was kind of just a story upon story. You know how stories start going. Like you hear a nice juicy piece of gossip and then you add to it because you want to make it even better than it is. And then they add to it and make it even better than it is. And it ends up being the story with some details that, that actually may never have happened. Maybe he was just a guy that got swallowed by a whale and they found him later and he was dead like he should be inside a belly of a whale. But anyway, sorry, it's kind of gross. But um, we continue with this idea of of there's really no, if you look up modern day Jonah stories, you will find some, but I could not find any that actually had historical evidence behind them of a modern day person getting swallowed by a whale, for goodness sakes, and surviving any amount of time. so anyways, so, so this idea, this debate rages. I, I told you there's two things to remember. One, that, that someone surviving in the belly of any other animal for three days is a miracle. But point number one, if you're writing down points to keep in mind about this debate between figurative or parable, figurative parable versus historical uh, actual events, is that we as Christians believe in miracles. That should be point number one. It would be a miracle if someone survived being in the whale or fish three days, but we are a group of people who believe in miracles. So we should not bat the eye that God could save someone from the the drowning in the ocean by a, a whale or a fish or a sea monster swallowing them. That would be a true miracle, but we as believers believe in miracles. That's point number one. Point number two is that we... um as Christians read the text of our scripture, and we should know as, as believers in the text of scripture that the Bible has lots of different types of genre in it. The book of Jonah is a beautiful story that, that may, you know, lots of Christians would argue, Christians would argue, that it falls into this idea of figurative language, poetic language, 
uh, parable language. So we as Christians, point number two, I'm working on how to word this, is that we should know that parable stories are still true. Like Jesus tells parables. In fact, if you look up how much he spoke in parables, it looks like about one-third of what Jesus said was in parables. Is a parable true? Yeah, it's true. It's just not literal. Like if you were talking, if you, if you were there when Jesus was talking, he's talking about the parable of the prodigal son, which is one of my favorite parables, about how a son goes off and lives in wild living, then comes back to his loving father. And if at the end of that parable, you raised your hand and said, hey, Jesus, can you tell me the name of that father and son? I'd love to go to talk to them and find out more of their story. Like everyone would just look at you and be like, are you insane? Like this is a parable. You don't ask for the person's name to go talk to them. The whole thing is a parable. And, and so point number two is that parable language is still language and a genre that we can learn from, that we can glean truth from, even though it's not historical and literal. Hopefully that makes sense. Um, and so um, I think that's all I w- want to say about that. Maybe one more thing. One, one of the big I, uh, things that a lot of people bring to the table uh, with this figurative, literal idea of was Jonah literal or figurative is that they'll say, well, Jesus mentions Jonah. He actually mentions him three times, two in Matthew, one in Luke, about uh, and no sign will be given except for the sign of Jonah, for Jonah was swallowed and eaten or swallowed by a big sea monster. It's that Greek word. Uh, I think I wrote it down if you're interested, ketos, which I know some of you will write down and look up later because you're nerds and I love that about you. So anyways, so Jesus refers to Jonah, but, but, but Jesus, out of all people, um, A, speaks truth, but B, speaks very figuratively. You know, he's, he says the same things about himself, like uh, tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. Is he talking literal or figurative? Figurative. He doesn't actually, I mean, Jesus didn't spend his days actually rebuilding a literal temple. He figuratively rebuilt the temple of his body. So anyways, I, I, we, I could ramble on. We could open this up for debate and fight each other and, and, and try to wound each other with our words about whether Jonah was figurative or literal. But let's move on. Once again, we have bigger figurative fish to figuratively fry. <laughs> chapter 2. Um, which we just read the entire chapter. This is Jonah in the belly of the great sea monster praying the prayer that we started reading. You like that picture? It's just, you know, just Jonah hanging out um, in the belly of a big sea monster. And he prays this prayer. And with all seriousness, it's kind of the prayer, or I, I at least think about, I am drawn, my mind is, thinks about people that, that in some way like survive a horrible accident or survive even maybe a suicide attempt and, and people live on and have a new life after um after that that horrible incident or even after i mean jonah in some ways commits suicide because he tells the people on the boat to throw him off so the suicide attempt in some ways i'm not um uh being too legalistic about that idea of suicide there but but jonah throws uh, gets thrown off the boat he survives by miraculous inter, uh, God's intervention of a great sea monster swallowing him. He prays this prayer of thanksgiving, which is just interesting because he has this conversion. And after the whale uh, gives him up onto dry land, he then changes his mind and goes directly to Nineveh, at least as the story goes. And that's where we'll pick up in chapter 3. Uh, Jonah goes 
to the city of Nineveh. It's this, there's, it says something about how the city is so large it takes three days to travel across it. He preaches against the city. It says, um, he, says, uh, he says specifically, verse 4, chapter 3, verse 4, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. This is the word of the Lord to the Ninevites. And so that's what God says. It doesn't say, hey, if you, know, if you don't repent 40 more days and I will destroy you. It just says 40 more days and uh, you will be overthrown. And, and so the king um, issues a decree. He says everyone has to fast. Everyone has to repent. Everyone has to put on sackcloth. Uh, my wife found this little sackcloth sack um, and, and so it's like out of sack, it's like a, like a potato sack or something. And so if you were to make a shirt out of this and wear it, would it be comfortable or not? Not comfortable, obviously. It would like itch. And so this idea of putting on sackcloth, repenting, feeling like, you know, you're so sorry for your sins. And so Nineveh repents. And so once again, you have this potentially satirical or ironical um, idea. It actually says in chapter uh 3, verse 8, let the people and animals be covered in sackcloth. And so I just get this idea of like people chasing down their sheep and dressing them in sackcloth and the cows and the horses and the donkeys in sackcloth. Did this literally happen or is this just hyperbole language for the king issued this decree and just wanted the whole city to repent, including the animals. I mean, what do the animals do? That They didn't do anything wrong. But, but to make them repent, make everybody repent. We are so sorry for our sins. And, and the idea is that God saw, it says this in verse 10, God saw how they turned from their evil ways and he relented and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. And so he said, 40 more days, Nineveh will be destroyed. But he sees how they repent. He sees how they change from their evil ways. And then um, we see that chapter 4 begins with Jonah's reaction to God relenting. And it's this, this, this very awesome story that we'll show you in a clip of Veggie Tales. Um, but let me preface it by just saying that uh, chapter 4 of Jonah is Jonah realizing God's compassion. So there's this, this the, the VeggieTales story, we'll get it very close to, I mean, they add in their own characters and it's vegetables doing the story. So obviously it's not. Anyways, um, I think they do a good job because they show how Jonah was so mad at God having compassion on his enemies, the Ninevites. And we realize in this chapter that that's the reason why Jonah ran from the Lord instead of going to Nineveh. He went to Tarshish instead of Nineveh because he knew, and if you have your notes, that's the sweet quote that we use today, that that the Lord is is slow to anger and compassionate. And Jonah knew that. And he knew that if he went and and told the Ninevites to repent, that they would repent and and that God would not destroy them, which which just this big idea, because we're going to close with the video, but this, this big idea that what if... The Israelites changed. And what if the Israelites, God's people, you know, if the God's enemies, if the God's people's enemies can repent when being threatened with destruction, why wouldn't God's people repent and t- turn from their wickedness when prophets like Amos and Hosea and then the rest of the, the prophets from Judah, when they preached destruction, why didn't God's people turn and change. So anyways, uh, we'll, we'll conclude with this clip from Veggie Tales, which I hope you will love because I love. Um, here we go. 
So we'll, we'll let the veggie tale ending uh, kind of conclude our our talk about Jonah. We'll we'll pick up the other prophets next week and the week after, and this this bigger idea that God threatens punishment, but He is compassionate. And so let's conclude in prayer. God, we do thank you for this for this message of Jonah and the truth that you can teach us through this great prophet and this story. God, may we bless your name. May may we be truth speakers. May we be individuals and, and a people and a Mill Sunday School who worships you and you alone and, and knows your truth and knows your word. God, we love you so much. And everybody said, amen. All right, go in peace, everyone. We'll see you next week. Peace out.